Uh, here we are. And Where are we? We're here and in, deep inside the world of oneofus.net. Look around. What do you see, Joe? A lot of mucus. Well, ignore that. I had a cold last week. Uh, yeah, this is like back-end mucus. Okay, so I save it like Howard Hughes. Whatever. He was super rich. I'm trying to follow in his footsteps. Are you going to stay forever young? Uh, that's the goal. Can we listen to Forever Young? Definitely not. Okay, I'm out. Shit, now you have it stuck in my head. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Fuck. What can we do to get the racist song from my head? Uh, jello shots? Well, hold on. There's a door over here. And it's got a signpost. It says, digital noise. The 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 the, the, the quickening? <laughs> no, just digital noise. Oh, okay. Yeah, good. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I couldn't uh, read it very well. No problem. And, and look here. It has a little mini fridge. What's Ooh. this? Oh, I think it's beer. Beer. All right, well, let's crack it open and get to going. Yeah, it's digital noise time, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us yet again. We got a whole stack of movies, as we usually do when it's me and Joe. That's right. <laughs> we're the devoted watchers. Uh, <laughs> but we we're have, not Owatu. We have no life, as is clear. <laughs> we're like, what are you doing tonight? Like, eh, I'm watching movies. Like, oh, that sounds great. Yeah. Yeah, if it wasn't the fifth one today. <laughs> Sometimes it is great. <laughs> and today we actually do have a lot of good stuff on the show. And we really do. Not so good stuff. Yeah, it's 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 balanced. But it is a show where we had we you know we couldn't even agree on the best of the pick of the nope week. nope. Uh, but this show is brought to you by uh, Audible.com. You'll see a banner on our our page, and you can click on that. It'll bring you Audible.com, where they've got lots and lots and lots, like hundreds of thousands of uh, books. Uh, pre-recorded books some of which with the actual people reading them. i believe they've got the new felicia day on there her, oh well they have felicia for being days. a geek <laughs> uh her her mom lives here in austin i bet she does wait huh <laughs> that wasn't sure very good sexually was, yeah, i'm not really sure where you were going i, with I bet that, she, so. does. Well, she does see that was better that was yeah. better no Oh. Still doesn't really make sense. That's why Felicia and Arthur my calls. <laughs> uh, or all, all sorts of good stuff on there. Or the podcast. I know that there's there's a, a lock and key uh, audible drama on there now. Oh, is there which now? It's pretty cool. Cause, you know, based on Joe Hill's amazing comic book series. So if you click on that and you sign up where you get your first thing for free, and I believe there's now a thing where you get like one free thing a month or something like that. No, like subscription thingy. Yeah, 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 there, well, yeah. There's something like when you sign up, you still, yeah, well, if you when you sign up officially, you still get a certain amount of stuff for free. Yes. Uh, that's pretty awesome. And we get a big kickback from them if you sign up. So for Christ's sake, sign up and do it through our banner. That's right. Audible. It's basically like paying protection money. <laughs> and also click on all of our uh, our links here. You'll see the images of all the movies that we and TV shows that we are reviewing. If you click on them and buy those titles through those Amazon links, we get a, a nice little kickback from Amazon. Helps keep the lights on here. But in fact, Christmas time is coming up, and you can buy any of your Christmas presents on Amazon as long as you start through one of our links. 
links and then just surf from there. Whatever you buy after that point, we get a kickback from it. Well, you know, I just bought a Kindle Fire, but I used it by clicking through one of us.net. That makes you a hero, Joe. Well, duh. <laughs> well, yeah, that and saving all the kids in that burning building. But yeah, mainly I'm- the Amazon purchase. Well, it, it made up for me throwing those kids in a vat of acid. I didn't know about that. Well, that was me time. Okay, I'll give you that one this time. <laughs> but no more kids in vats of acid. Yeah, you got it. I'm going to throw them in a thrasher next time. <laughs> no, no more deaths. <laughs> only preventative measures. I guess I could use them as like a vampire blood bank, but it's up to you. Okay, well, let's just move on here. Say thank you to everyone. Thanks to our subscribers. You guys, more than anybody, help us keep things going at oneofus.net. It is a lot of work, and we do for very little, if no, pay. So <laughs> we really appreciate it. It's expensive hosting all this stuff and getting work done and paying for some of our techie people. So we thank you. But anyway, it's time to move on from, from uh, house cleaning and get to... The review reviews, and uh, we're going to start this off with uh, the end. No, the, all right, the end of the tour. Oh uh, yes, the, the tour ending thing. Yeah, this is a uh, the recently released. Boy, they wasted no time getting this uh, the home release out for this one uh, about writer David Foster Wallace, uh, who is. One of those heroes to people who sit around in coffee shops uh, mm-hmm. reading. That's yep. a, there's a 9 out of 10 chance if you're reading a book in a coffee shop, it's a David Foster Wallace book. Uh, <laughs> uh, Infinite Jest was probably his most, well, definitely his most famous well-known uh, book, which Time Magazine called one of the 100 best English language novels from 1923 to 2005. Wouldn't know, never read it. No, I was I was busy reading, like, uh, beat literature at that time. I think I was rereading Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy for, like, the 12th time. We had our different uh, paths to David Foster Wallace. <laughs> uh, but this uh, story is based on an interview uh, that a journalist, David Lipsky, did with David Foster Wallace before he committed suicide in 2008. In fact, it's it's told in the format of sort of like a, like a tale ended by he's killed himself, uh, and the guy, the David Lipsky, remembering back to this interview he did, which was basically the end of uh, Lipsky's. Or, I'm sorry, the end of Foster Wallace's book tour. Uh, to, you know, do little speeches, read from the book, get books, sell books, and sign, get them signed. Uh, And the weird connection they had as they toured together and Wallace, who's infamously, like, kind of a misanthrope, you know? Yeah, I wouldn't even say that. I think he's just uh, just, curmudgeon. He's kind of terrified of people. (laughs) Yes. And he's really kind of fucked up in the head. And here you have Jason Segel playing uh, David Foster Wallace and Jesse Eisenberg playing the also kind of fucked up David Lipsky. He's very, he's very Jason Eisenberg. He's very nervous and ticky and overthinks everything. Uh, and, I mean, this is a conversation film. Oh, completely. You know, I mean, that's that's all that's had. They're not going it, to... It's not like a buddy adventure where they get end up getting mistaken for criminals and chased by the cops and the mob or something. Well, well deleted scenes. Been, deleted that, scenes. Because that would have been fun to watch, too. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was more really uh, using... using um, Horatio Algernon, whatever the hell his name was, uh, David Foster Wallace, uh, as, as kind of a sounding board as Eisenberg's character just really uh, grew as a human being. Uh-huh. Whereas Foster Wallace just kind of like, nope, I'm still this thing. Yeah, I mean, their relationship is interesting as it evolves through this. They're, like I said, they're both 
kind of curmudgeonly in their own way. Mm-hmm. They're both very set in their ways, more yes. importantly. And it's clear at first that these two have more in common than they don't, but it's a goddamn miracle they managed to spend more than five minutes in the car together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jealousy alone should have should have had one of them kill the other. Well, there's a lot of that, really, that, that ultimately Lipsky is extremely jealous of yes. Wallace, but he his ego won't let him admit it. And I think that's one of the core elements here in this film. Yeah, and, he's going for the soft win. And, but one of the things that kind of irritated me about it, too, I was like, yeah, we get it. It kind of <laughs> hits you over the head with it to the point that by the end, you're just kind of tired of the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, well, I was I was very tired just because of uh, the the, the ambiance of the movie from the get go. Did you, I was I was just kind of cold and sleepy. <laughs> well, it, it definitely is not a fast paced movie. No, it has some really interesting scenes, and I think overall its dialogue is very well written. Um, I think there is a lot of chemistry between these two actors. As yeah, well. surprisingly so. Yeah, you wouldn't expect that, but it actually works, and it kind of leads up to a moment that doesn't feel like it ever really pays off, which the whole time, you know, Lipsky, who's a journalist for Rolling Stone magazine, wants to ask him about rumors of him being a junkie. And it's not till close to the end he does, and then the whole thing really kind of peters out. Yeah. I hate you, but not really. (laughs) Uh... But I do think this is worth seeing if this is the type of thing you like. You know right off the bat. I mean, if you've ever yeah. seen, uh, uh, what's the one with the, uh, the uh, God damn it, now I've completely forgotten. Frost Nixon? Well, Frost Nixon is a great example. Thank <laughs> you. That's actually, a, I think, of the conversation films of that style, that's probably my favorite. Oh, yeah. It's uh, fantastic. Uh, but I was thinking of the, the old 70s indie film one that even Criterion has put out with the guy uh, from, uh, 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 I can't remember anything. Breaking like Bad? No, the guy uh, from the, the Princess Bride is like inconceivable. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. Now you now you made me forget. Yeah, you can't remember. Yeah, <laughs> you I'm knocked like, it right out of me. But that one did my dinner with Andre. Okay. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Which was kind of the the first big one of those, and I love that too. But this is, you know, I mean, it's a it's. I feel it's like a minor entry in this, mm-hmm. but it's still interesting. I've never read the books uh, of Dave Foster Wallace, so maybe I'm missing an angle on this. Yeah, I would say if you're a fan of Jason Siegel, but you want to see him do something other than be a sack of potatoes, watch this. It is one of his most interesting performances. Mm -hmm. It's, I mean, he really is on stage here, even in the context of like, I mean, he's got sharing equal time with uh, Jesse Eisenberg, but really all eyes are on him. Yes. I mean, like uh, as Lipsky's character is just, you know, is all about trying to get the interview out of him. Wallace is constantly trying to deflect any serious or real questions and just wants to hang out like buddies. Because he doesn't have any. Because <laughs> he doesn't have any friends, and you're not surprised the more you get to know him. Uh, this comes with audio commentary with the director, writer, and with Jason Siegel. There's like an almost 30-minute uh, making-of feature featurette, which is mainly just very candid responses from the cast and crew. Uh, conversation with Danny Elfman, who did the score, such as it is, and about seven and a half minutes of deleted scenes. Like when they were mistaken for bank robbers. That would have been so good. I was, someone needs to do like films that start off the feeling like real life <laughs> stuff with famous people, but then it goes some like they get kidnapped by aliens and right center of the center of the earth. Yeah, 
exactly. Uh, next up is the Stanford Prison Experiment. Uh, this is based on a, a recently released drama that is based on the self-named Stanford Pri- Prison Experiment, which is in Stanford University where the psychology professor named Philip Zimbardo set up a fake prison during uh, winter break inside of the school and got a bunch of volunteers of students to take on the roles of either prisoners or or guards. And almost immediately... Now, hey, boy. start going exactly where you would expect them to. <laughs> You're going to talk about my prison. You better say it with a smile. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, the one guy becomes like John Wayne almost instantly. <laughs> uh, uh, God, who was the actor who was playing that? Well, they really shouldn't have shown them cool oh, him, uh, Luke. Michael a- Angarano, who has been, like, has... It's definitely his most interesting role so far. He who has been in a lot of weird movies, like like weird choices for films in his career. Uh, almost was Anakin Skywalker. Boy, dodged a bullet on that one. But I always remember him from the Forbidden Kingdom. Uh, oh, remember that? Yeah, yeah. That was a weird oh my. role. Um, but. Yeah, he's like he's like the head of the like self-appointed, and everyone just goes along. He's clearly an alpha male <laughs> head of the the you know head guard uh, who's just well. What are you little Betty's doing? I think everybody should get down and give me twenty. That's right. Boy, you looked at me. You give me another twenty. Uh, <laughs> and you've got a lot of recognizable people here as the prisoners, including I, Ezra Miller, Ty Sheridan, uh, Logan Miller. It's a lot of people, almost everybody. I was like, oh, I've seen them and stuff. <laughs> uh, but Billy Crudup comes in as the doctor who really should have stopped this long before well, it got to the point that it did. After after watching this, I did a little research on, on the Dr. Philip Zimbardo, mm-hmm. and the guy is a fucking nutcase to this day, and yeah. he actually has been still given uh, awards in, in uh, psychology. And well, it's funny, this this is, you know, when you look it up, it's like almost everything that happens in this movie is actually what happened. Yeah. Like, it's really close to reality, but you watch the movie and it feels more dramatized. No, this is pretty much exactly how it went down, and the case is still held up as a really important study. Uh, although apparently lately there's been some major criticisms that like, okay, there are whole sections of this where it, it's it, it empirically unsound, yeah. yeah, unsound as hell. But nonetheless, watching it as a movie is pretty tense. Oh, it's it. It was super chilling. Like I don't really fall into the feel of a movie, but for this one, I was like, ooh, oh, oh. Oh, yeah. this is bad. Yeah, you're like, guys, get out. It is not worth $15 a day. Yeah, if, if one of you breaks an arm, they have to stop this. Yeah, uh, and it does make you wonder why no one brought criminal charges against him. Oh, they completely, if it happened today, oh, yeah. he'd, he'd, he'd be, he'd be hella, sued to pants. Yeah. Like, he'd be sued to, to pieces. He'd have nothing left. His his descendants would be sued. Yeah, his, <laughs> his black gap shirt that he wears nowadays would be gone too. <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, this was in uh, 1971, so people weren't as trigger happy on the lawsuits then. As no, no, back in the good old days. Yeah, in fact, most of the people who came out of this, despite how stressed and freaked out they were during it, after the fact, were like. I get how this was a valuable psychological experiment. I get that this was necessary. And you're like, really? Because I'd be mad. Yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd say, okay, we're making it 30 a day at the very least. Yeah, yeah, you double my salary for that bullshit. But yeah, I really recommend the Stanford Prison Experiment film. It's actually a pretty good watch. Yeah, not date night material, but still. No, no, it is not. What is date night material is splatter, architects of fear. Oh, boy. Oh, wait, I didn't say that out loud, did I? Because uh, it's not. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't. I didn't want to date you before, but I really don't want to now. Look, this is a re-release on DVD from a really old, like '80s, like collector's item video cassette that you pretty much only even knew existed if you had a subscription to Fangoria magazine. <laughs> you know, one of mm. those type things where basically these guys have set up a fake. I mean, it's a real documentary about a fake movie. Yeah, and uh, you. If this was was uh, crafted by special effects experts, you'd know why they're not writers. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. And the thing is, the effects, they're not bad. They're very 80s special yeah, effects. Yeah, I wouldn't say they were great, but no, they weren't no, bad. I mean, for, for like a, like a B-horror-level filmmaking, you're like, okay, these are decent enough effects. And yeah. There are, as they go through, they're like, okay, we're watching this horror movie being filmed that, once again, I'm... I'm uh, 99% sure was faked just for, like the budget yeah. went into making this fake movie. Yeah, Amazon you know? Vixens versus like space Nazis yeah, or some I, shit. It was, it's like like post-apocalyptic but all in a warehouse <laughs> 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 with like yeah, Amazons uh versus the mutants. Oh, that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah, and and uh I think it was the same warehouse where they shot most of Silk Stockings. It could have been. <laughs> like it should have it, it would be something that you would see on uh USA up all night. Well, what's the weirdest thing about this is that it's trying to give you everything that an 80s horror movie does, like lots and lots of nudity. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see full-on vag at one point. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, and ass. <laughs> like, if you're freeze-framing. You, you get the kitten and the that. caboodle, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, there's tons of gore. There's almost no story. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's pretty much an 80s horror, only done from the viewpoint of like, okay, it's all behind the scenes. And it's so incredibly, ridiculously poorly planned. They try and have these surrounding mini stories. Like there's a guy named Fang who works on the production. That was the worst. It's like, oh, yeah, no, it's like this crazy Igor type that like they go to cut to for comic relief, I suppose. But you're just like, please stop. Yeah. Don't. And, And worst of all, this whole thing. Feels like you're watching it on someone's third generation VHS copy. Yeah, yeah. The transfer didn't didn't do. I mean, this is really only for the most hardcore obsessive collector fans of '80s horror. Or if you want to do a drinking game, uh, what would you? What would your drinking game be? Uh, every shitty special effect. So then you dive of alcohol poisoning. <laughs> every time they make a joke that doesn't even come near landing. So once again, <laughs> yeah. But you could probably do that on our show as well. We try to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd say splatter, like I said, Architects of Fear, only if you're one of those people. Now, this next one I didn't get to see, unfortunately. I ran out of time, or rather, I ran out of energy. Uh, but that is uh, Kino Lorber's re release of Faust, uh, which is F.R. Murnau's silent adaptation of. Uh, uh, Gota. Yeah, of uh, Gota's uh, tale of Mephisto making a wager between uh, with an archangel, uh, trying to get the single man Faust, who's an alchemist, to uh, to make a deal with evil, uh, and threaten threaten his love for for his wife, presumably. Uh, and I, this is pretty famous for, among silent film fans as being one of the most effective, like very. Use of of light and shadows and and terrifying imagery. I mean, it's put right up there with the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. is one of the all time greatest right, silent right. films. And I sadly, like I said, did not actually get to watch the thing. I will at some point. I'm sure they had the Rubido, and then they had the Albedo, and then all the <laughs> alchemy stuff. Uh, and and Murno, of course, is the guy who made uh, Nosferatu. 
Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, definitely one of the most famous German filmmakers and the founder, more or less, of that entire movement of that sort of. Uh, uh, I'm forgetting the term. I'm uh, like I said, I'm really tired today. It's all right. Uh, the term for that style of filmmaking in Germany that ended up coming over to America as well. We'll we'll call it squishy black and white. Squishy black and white. Um, yeah, I, I like. I mean, this is. I'd say you have to see this, and so do I. <laughs> <laughs> it comes with. It's nice. It comes with some good extras. Is the 57 and a half minute uh, look like making of called the language of shadows, basically hard to believe there's enough footage like about that. But yeah, it's a look at the, the shoot, which apparently was incredibly difficult. And Murnau was an amazingly demanding director and would punish his cast to make it more real, like actually make them suffer. Yeah. Well, I mean, Raza Gould was a technical director on that. <laughs> uh, and then uh, about 12 minutes of Marguerite and Faust screen tests, which have actors, uh, doing their interpretation of this, of these roles for a production of Faust that never happened by Ernst Lubitsch. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, pretty fucking like cool stuff to be re-released. Quite the Faustian bargain. Indeed. As was uh, Peter Jackson signing up to make three Hobbit films. Yeah. So uh, I was warned about this and so I just skipped it. Well, you know, uh, I also skipped it as well because I've seen The Hobbit Battle of the Five Armies. I've seen it. I've mm-hmm. seen it twice. I watched it in the theater and I watched it again uh, saying it can't have been as bad as I remembered it <laughs> on Blu-ray. And it really is like, you know, even the biggest Tolkien fanatics admit this is the lowest point of the of the series. And unfortunately, the extended edition to all reports is the worst of the extended editions as well. This is a film that no no one of the Hobbit films did anyone say, yeah, I want to see longer versions of those. <laughs> Please, more of those people I don't care about. And yet this one, which is the shortest of the actual films, I mean, mm-hmm. you can actually feel the crowbarring in of stuff <laughs> and Peter Jackson going, why, oh, why didn't we just make the entire smog thing in this movie instead of cutting it in half? Could have done it. Uh, it. There's so many problems with battle of the five armies and you, so you've seen the movie itself. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, this just, it basically makes it rated R, which I'm not sure why anybody cares. Oh yeah. The sensual fan dance sequence that was missing. <laughs> um, they actually do add some character beats that presumably that from what I hear is the best part of what is added on in here uh, with scenes with uh, Martin Freeman's extra scenes with Armitage and McKellen, which admittedly felt like scenes with the three of them were what one of the things you were that did feel missing when you were watching it. But most of it is really just unnecessary stuff. And like I said, lo- much longer war sequences Um like more stuff with Tariel, which nobody wanted in here in the first place. I mean, poor Evangeline Lilly. I think she does a good job in the part, but a part that she's uh, just lost. A part that there's no reason to be here at all. And she's just lost. I see what you're yeah. um, <laughs> You're so proud of yourself. Really am. Uh, and that even at the end is like, so with the way that whole storyline plays out, you're like, so what was the point of that? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the point of this is in, instead of watching the extended cut, yeah. just watch Meet the Feebles. <laughs> <laughs> well, or the original Lord of the Rings series, which still or, holds up and is really you. good. The thing is, Jackson came out recently saying, 
I had like six months to put this together, like before pre-production. Mm-hmm. We had six years to put together the original series. Yeah, I'm guessing there weren't uh, tattoo shot or tattoo visits like uh, by the cast, like in in uh, the Lord of the Rings. Um, I don't know. There were a lot of like. There is a lot of bonding, and you can see that on the extensive extra features that come with this. I think it's like 10 hours of extra features oh, on this boy. disc, which is, you know, trying to please the fans because the originals all did that too. Right, right, right. It was like, and I, I'm almost embarrassed to admit I've watched every single one of the bonus features on the original Lord of the Rings <laughs> disc, some of them more than, more than once. I have watched none of them. On the Hobbit because <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you know, one run through was enough. Yeah, I, I don't need much. to know how you rendered that that orc's balls. But it's just there's so much about this that makes clear it didn't have the same heart in it as the original series. There wasn't as enough time to plan ahead of time. There's so many shortcuts that are taken in almost every level of the production. And yet still you can watch any one of these three and go, Hey, this is a better than average little fantasy film. It's just, the problem is when you hold them up against the bar of the previous Lord of the Rings films, you go, Oh no, wait, these are pretty shitty. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, uh, with, with coming out with this, uh, it just feels like, uh, you know, they're, they're, the studio is going, all right, buy this, you trick. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> almost so and uh that there's weird some weird stuff on here too like there's the button a 2011 greeting where peter jackson ian mckellen and eric vespi put together a birthday video for harry knowles uh at the button film festival but this is from 2011 yeah which is like long before this film came out. That was not a film that showed at the 2011 Butnamathon. So I was like, well, why are you putting that on this disc? So this movie ain't cool? Is that what you're saying? I mean, was this... Because The Hobbit was even after that, right? Yeah, it's thought yeah. so. So it's like, okay, I don't understand. Anyway, I, I presumably this is when they were on set filming The Hobbit. Because I know Eric... Oh, v- possibly. I know Vespi, who is Quint for Any Cool News, actually has a very, very small sort of cameo role in the first Hobbit film. Okay. Uh, but anyway, enough about that. You guys are like, we don't care about The Hobbit Extended Edition. We've already made up our minds. You're not going to do anything. We're, we've already sure. bought it. Well, let me tell you about something else then. Let's talk about the director, Abel Ferrara. Who's <laughs> probably... Best known for uh, making well, I mean, like I think the best film I've seen by him is Ms. Forty Five. Really enjoyed it. Nice little like if you want, people are like, oh, like uh, rape revenge films. Why would I watch any of those? Well, this is actually one of them that's actually pretty good. Yeah, but I mean, not- the dance sequence was nice. <laughs> Uh, but he's best known for Bad Lieutenant. Yes. No question with Harvey Keitel. He tends to make very pushing the envelope, dangerous and violent and sexually violent films mm-hmm. that cause a conversation. No question about it. Uh, this film, Dangerous Game, it definitely is something you want to have a conversation about after, but probably not in the most positive way. I will admit that Madonna, who plays one of the major stars in here, is much better than I thought she'd be. Well, she fits the role of hapless actress. She does. <laughs> uh, 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 and uh, living in an emotionally chaotic time, at this point she was married to Sean Penn and was in the height of their That's right. probably beating the shit out of I was going to say, she remembers that chair. <laughs> uh, but the idea, it's film within a film story with uh, Harvey Keitel, working with Farrar again, playing Eddie Israel, uh, I don't know if that's a, a, a Jews in Hollywood like. Yeah, I couldn't tell. I didn't, our, yeah, I, I wasn't sure. Not really sure there. But uh, basically, he's making this intense, like, violent sexual drama um, with 
Madonna, who's not who's playing a- actress named Sarah Jennings, and James Russo playing actor named Frank Burns. Not, I'm pretty sure it's not a Mash reference, though, at the <laughs> very least. <laughs> um, a film called Mother of Mirrors, and it's basically just scene after scene of Madonna having the shit beat out of her, either physically or psychologically, by the other guy. You know, the, like uh, with Russo, there was a scene where he was uh, manhandling his what, girlfriend, wife, whatever. Uh-huh. Um, that that was ripped straight out of. Um, Urban cowboy. Okay, but it was it was like uh, it was a a lot more jarring in Urban Cowboy because it wasn't just this fucking douchebag machine just constantly being awful to women. Well, it's like the thing is like he's like they go okay, well he's method acting or something because he actually sleeps with Madonna in real life at one point and just treats her like shit there as well, and she's like you know berates him for that and. He's just getting steadily more and more abusive on set and more of an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. You know, Harvey Keitel himself is wastes no time in cheating on his wife with anyone who will come <laughs> near him. Uh, and I'm not really sure ultimately what the point of all this was. Oh, there wasn't. Like, Hollywood is corrupt and hypocritical. Well, you already know how I feel about movies and movies. I mean, sometimes movies within movies can be good, but I, I feel like this was a failed experiment. Oh, by far. I mean, the <laughs> only really interesting thing about this is, well, Harvey Keitel is quite good, as he always is, like, yeah. as a performance. I mean, all the performances are good here. It's just they don't add up to anything. I mean, I was genuinely surprised by how completely Madonna put herself in this part. I can't remember. Is this pre or post Dick Tracy? Uh, pre. This okay. was pretty early in her film career. Uh, she had done, I think at this point already, the two films she did with Sean Penn that everybody hated. Well, don't forget that's really like, seeking Body Susan. of Evidence. Well, mm-hmm. that was her first movie that everybody liked. And then she did Body of Evidence, which everybody hated, and um, Shanghai Surprise, which everybody really hated. <laughs> and then this film, when it came out, before shit even came out, she started criticizing it, calling it a piece of shit, which then she got criticism for because critics were like, Compared to those other two films, this is not that bad of a movie. This pile of dog shit isn't steaming. It's like, you were actually at least good in this as opposed to those other two films. So me thinks you were trying to jump the gun on the criticism. Yeah, she was just, uh, forget the phrase, a little punchy. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, not that one could completely blame her. Uh, Because, I mean, ultimately, I just don't think this is a very good film. Mm -mm. But it's it's for Abel Farrar completists. But yeah, if if you got to be that guy, <laughs> yeah, I mean there are people who are that guy. There, there's a lot of people who love his work. I mean, he certainly, like I said, has made some really interesting films as well. Like King of New York is another one, or Driller Killer, which is regularly held up as one of those slasher films that's about more than just being a slasher film. You know, like okay, fair enough. Uh, but I've never been the biggest horror fan. I'm like, I get it, I get the appeal. It just doesn't appeal to me. Uh, next up is a film that does appeal to me quite a bit, which is uh, In Cold Blood, the film adaptation by Richard Book, uh, Brooks of Truman Capote's book based on the true story. That's because you're a bad boy and everybody doesn't like you. It's not writing. It's just typing. <laughs> uh, you know, I saw this years ago and mm-hmm. remember being a little like, yeah, I mean, it's all right. Watching this again, this new Criterion edition, I was like, "Wow, what did I not see in this before?" No, it's it's uh, as as the kids on the Reddit say, "Old school cool." Oh man, it really is. It was nominated for best director, best original score, best cinematography, and best adapted screenplay at the Academy Awards. Uh, kind of surprised it wasn't nominated for best picture as well because it really is that level of good. What I really liked about it is that it proved to me that uh, okay, well, first it's got a murder in it, yes, like a for reals murder, yeah. 
based on a real series. No, of I mean Robert Blake. But oh yeah, that's Robert Blake playing in the movie Perry Smith. Uh, uh, you know uh, the, the the version of a real life murderer who later, in fact, became a real life murderer. Yeah, it was it was foreshadowing. Uh, but no, talk uh, about your method acting. All right, and a little late, sir. Uh, but no, I I loved seeing John Forsyth and knowing that he's always been older. <laughs> Yeah, no matter how old he is, he always looks like he's 70. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this also had uh, Scott Wilson playing the other killer on the road with with Blake's character, Dick Hickok, um, who, if you don't, you're like, I don't know who Scott Wilson is. Yes, you do. He was Herschel on The Walking Dead. No. It, it, I, it, it was driving me crazy who he was till I had to fucking pause the movie and look it up on Wikipedia. I was like, oh, my God, it's fucking Herschel. Holy well, shit. there you go. There you go. And uh, it's these two guys who have uh, gotten out of prison relatively recently, and they found out about this farmhouse that supposedly several states away that supposedly has a huge amount of money hidden in a safe, uh, the clutter family. Most of this is like, it starts with us just kind of seeing, okay, they went in there, they committed the crime. We didn't really, we didn't get to see it. And now they're, they're, they're gone, convinced they left no evidence. And in fact, as we see the police interspersed here and there, there is no evidence. They, they really can find almost nothing. And yeah, they're like, they, I don't know how we're going to find the guys who did this. It's because they used ice daggers. <laughs> what, are you been playing one-minute mysteries? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> uh, that was – yeah. <laughs> uh, and most of this is kind of a road trip with the two of them on the road, trying to figure out what they're going to do next. Uh, us slowly realizing how truly mentally disturbed Robert Blake's character is. I mean, character. almost childlike, mm-hmm. you know, and that he just doesn't get the implications of the things that he does. Right. Yeah. It's like a, a, a kid taking apart like a grasshopper or something. And, and, uh, uh, Hickok, Scott Wilson's character is just this complete manipulative, like alpha male redneck guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, he, he knows what he's got. But it is fascinating watching them. The performances are so good, and you're really following the procedural stuff, too, as the mm-hmm. police are trying to put this together. Uh, I really – I actually thought this was, like, one of the more powerful films of its type I've seen. Oh, yeah. No, completely. Because it's, it's, uh, it certainly could have been, but it wasn't campy. No, not at all campy. And it's very artistically made. I mean, mm-hmm. really gorgeous to look at at points. Some of the cinematography in this thing is just not. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just, just beautiful. And, of course, it's the Criterion edition, which means it's packed with good stuff. Not just uh, the essay that comes with it in the, in the packaging, but um, there's a video interviewer with the biographer of the director – uh, talking about his whole history, everything he did, every you know, working for various stuff. Like he worked on The Killers and uh, Key Largo. Key Largo, by the way, one of the greatest noir films ever. Oh, yeah. So good. Uh, there's an interview with the cinematographer, John Bailey, who definitely deserves to be talked to because it's just gorgeous stuff. Uh, video interview with a film critic and jazz historian who talks about one of the things we haven't brought up in here. It's so good is Quincy Jones's soundtrack for this, which is stunning. You would. This is one of those things you watch this and you want to just buy the soundtrack. Yeah. You're like, oh man, I would just listen to this when I'm killing my own victim. Well, and it just reinforces that Quincy has <laughs> been around forever. Yeah, yes he has. He really is a legend. Uh, 
And his daughter, not so bad either. <laughs> There's an interview with uh, another film historian, Bobby Osteen, who talks about the editor, Peter Zinner, and his history of work. Uh, there's a archival episode of a French TV program where director Richard Brooks talks about making this film and with meeting with Truman Capote. There's an interview with Truman Capote here. Uh, there's, uh, in fact, several pieces with Truman Capote. There's one where he's being interviewed with Barbara Walters. Oh, come on. That there's, one, that one's so awesome. <laughs> there's one where he goes to the actual house where the murders happened in real life. Uh, this is one is absolutely packed with bonus features and is absolutely a, you should own it. So do it. So do it. What are you waiting? What are you still listening to me for? Get out there. Uh, next up is The Man from Uncle. Not the TV series. The the re-envisioning for the film, directed by Guy Ritchie, uh, that has brought widely ranging re- like reviews. Filling in for the role of Johnny Neal will be me. <laughs> it's the best thing ever. Bond is an idiot. I love it. That was weird, wasn't it? Were you there on that? Yes, I was. That was so weird. I've never seen, and he and Bo were like matching each other in passion. And I was like, I'm disagreeing with all. I mean, I like this film too, but I'm disagreeing with almost well, everything the, you guys are I saying. think the fan boner was more nostalgia. Than yeah. Product. Like you're remembering more what you liked about the show than what this was actually in the movie. And I, I did in, like this movie. Oh, I love the did. crap out of it. But to say it's better than any Bond film being made, or even better than most, is just way off. Well, it's not better than Live and Let Die. Let's get it out there right now. <laughs> it's not better than quite a few of them. But still, it's trying to do more of a old school spy film, buddy comedy type deal. Lots of sexual innuendo, some cool gadgets. You've got Henry Cavill playing Napoleon Solo, the American's secret agent who is working in this new organization with his former nemesis, uh, Ilya, uh, Ilya Kuryakin played by army hammer, who feels a little out of place. Uh, as a Russian. yeah, but it's the best thing I've seen him in. Uh, I'm not really a big army hammer. No, the social network. I didn't say it. Oh dude, you have to watch the social network. Yeah, maybe it's so good. <laughs> it really does, does he have a good Russian accent in this one? In the social network? <laughs> no, he's he's playing twins though. Oh, that is unfortunate. Uh, Alicia Vikander, who's like kind of in every single movie that came out this year, is yes, second yeah, uh, is in this as well as sort of the other person they're working with, who's also you know the sexual interest for both of them in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I this thing has certainly gotten accused from some female friends of mine and fans of being pretty goddamn misogynist. I don't know if I agree with that completely. I mean, in which ways I feel like it's, they create a strong female character and then don't do anything interesting with her is the biggest problem. Oh yeah. They create a character that that should have been given more to do and then completely sidelined. She got to wear nice clothes. I don't see what the problem is. (laughs) It's like, show me, don't tell me. They keep telling me how awesome and smart and capable this woman is. And then let's see it. Well, she had the little tussle fight with, with uh, (laughs) Ilya. Yeah, well, not enough. Okay. All right. Next time, more fighting. I did like Hugh Grant playing the boss. Yeah, and he didn't stutter a single goddamn time. I was like, how many times did you have to do a take of that before he could like just say it without doing his English, uh, the insecure guy? uh, uh, (laughs) Um, I do think this is fun, though. I mean, it's got some fun stunt sequences. It's got some good laughs in it. Uh, it, It's just maybe not the masterpiece that some other people on our previous recording for it made it out to be. (laughs) Uh, I, I... 
it's something I will go back and watch again, though. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's one of those. Oh man, it's on TNT. Let's just watch it. Yeah. Well, yeah, like the style in it. I, you know, I'm a big fan of '60s style. Oh, as yeah, it is. You've so. got to you've got to give it credit for making like you know the costume design and everything mm-hmm. is like okay, that that's gorgeous. We right now we're all about '60s and '70s clothing and fashion porn. I mean, that's yeah, a big for thing. good <laughs> reason. <laughs> and and this is more of that to be sure. It's a beautiful looking movie in in that context. Uh, in fact, one of the special features on here is they talk about uh, they talk to the costume designer <laughs> about the wardrobe and locations and stuff like that, which is really the main thing you want to see in a bonus feature from this. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, next up is one that genuinely surprised me that I enjoyed it as much as I did because it's from RJL Entertainment that's not known for putting out anything generally all that great. Like, <laughs> well, I'm glad you didn't say quality. Was- <laughs> C-grade? Like, you're like, a lot of you'll, there's stuff you'll be like, you know what, this is a passable action movie or horror movie or whatever, but it's oh. skipped theaters. A Christmas Horror Story is one of those I could kind of see it fitting into that same niche that Trick or Treat did for Halloween, mm-hmm. you know, where you're like, oh, it's a horror anthology that is completely in service of the season. Yeah. And is actually pretty entertaining. When when I was watching it, I thought to myself, this should be on Chiller. This is what Chiller needs. Chiller needs to do more stuff like this. Because clearly this is a labor of love mm-hmm. by the various filmmakers that were making it. There's uh, three of them, Grant Harvey, Stephen Hoban, and Brett Sullivan, who direct the various different parts of this. You've got William Shatner playing DJ Dan, who's kind of an asshole radio DJ in a small town, who's getting drunk while pulling the overnight Christmas Eve shift uh, here at the radio station. And uh, it the stories, rather than being straight, like most anthologies are just, here's this story, then here's this story, then here's this story. This intercuts back and forth between all the stories. Which can get a little jarring, but you kind of forgive it just because they're, it's also absurd. My biggest problem is really they didn't, if I have a real problem with this film, it's that the beats don't match up well enough. Yeah, yeah that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, because so you, you're like one is doing something really exciting and then the other nothing is happening. And right then now. kids are stupid taping something. <laughs> uh, one story is about a group of teenagers who break into their high school and then get trapped in the basement when they're investigating a really bizarre cult, like satanic cultish murder that, that happened there a year ago. And now it looks like there was supernatural means. Uh, there is a couple who just, who are going out to cut down their Christmas tree and with their son and come home with something that's not their son, mm. but looks just like him. Uh, and then there is a, a family that's going out, to visit a wealthy family member that lives out in the middle of nowhere who, you know, to basically ingratiate themselves with them and uh, end up accidentally getting the Krampus on their tail. Now, that kid was a shit. Uh, all, <laughs> all of these have very um, Christmassy stuff going through. Yes. I mean, obviously, the Krampus won more than anything, anything else here, but they all have Christmas-related horror themes to them. Decent enough gore to be serviceable yeah. gore, but what makes it fun is that they're all kind of given a wink and a nudge the same way to the audience, the same way Trick or Treat did with yeah. its stories, where you're like, hey, we're all just here to have fun. Let's, yeah, you know. they, it didn't feel like they were trying to be like mind-blowingly innovative, but no. it didn't feel like they were taking you for granted. And it's one of those ones that I'd say, yes, I will watch this on Christmases from now on. Yeah. You know, I like to have people over and have like Orphan's Christmas, and we watch weird offbeat Christmas movies, and this is one you go, this is definitely one you'd want to show to people. Yeah, with blood eggnog. Yeah, well, of course. 
worse. How do you drink your eggnog? With blood. It makes it salty. Yeah, it makes it pass easier. Uh, Shatner looks like he was probably actually getting drunk when filming this. Oh, well, that's I, I love Shat being Shat. Yeah, and he's totally just being... He's He, he comes across as like, I'm just going to be me, okay? And you're like, wow, you're kind of obnoxious. <laughs> you know, he is. <laughs> I love Shatner, but let's face it, when no, there are no cameras on him, he's probably kind of intolerable. <laughs> oh, yeah, kind of. <laughs> and this feels like that Shatner. <laughs> uh, Chris and our story, so, to my surprise, I really recommend. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, another thing I really recommend this week is The Color of Noise. Ooh, I do not. Really? Nope. You didn't care for this at all? Well, Mm-mm. this is the story of Amphetamine Reptile Records, uh, which is well known for basic. They basically innovated the noise rock, most of their, their stuff on their label. Um, all sorts of bands that came out of there. Uh, I wish I had actually posted together a list of them because that would be helpful. But this is not really the story completely of the label in it of, of itself, but, uh, the story of the, uh, the founder of, of the thing, uh, Tom Hazelmeyer, who goes by the artist name Hayes XXL. And it follows, I mean, this label's been around for like 20 plus years now. And it Damn near fo- 30, yeah. follows the history of like what was happening at that point and how a lot of things that ended up becoming like kind of standard issue in the underground record industry kind of evolved out of the mm-hmm. scene that was going on there. Um, most notably, the whole poster scene. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was the most interesting part of this movie. That was. I mean, my big problem with it was ultimately it never gave me a reason to give a shit. Uh-huh. Like, just throughout. Like, you know, we, we, we've we've done a few of these of uh, documentaries on music movements. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the one on the, on the DC hardcore scene. Yeah. Like. Yeah. Uh, uh, what was that called? I'm blanking. Uh, Salad days. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think it, it did a really good job of like, okay, so maybe you're not into this, but this is why it's it's kind of important and informative. Mm-hmm. Uh, this just kind of really seems like a bunch of like, hey, you remember that one time when we did that thing? <laughs> like, it, and it, I don't know. It just wasn't enough for me. I mean, I agree with you. It's unbalanced. I just think it's one of those ones that snowballs as it goes along and gets more interesting it, the longer it yeah, goes. Yeah, but it wasn't enough for me personally. Well, part of it for me is that I actually really liked a lot of the bands that mm-hmm. were around at that time. I mean, like the kind of the big introduction to, to them from a lot of people was helmet mm-hmm. who, like first got noticed on their label and helmet was, I mean, you look at all the bands that really like you can really credit as coming out of there directly. It's either them or the Jesus lizard that you go, okay, this is where they, sh- they, they really made some like brought out some great artists. Well, like, like hel- a lot of people helmet and, and mud honey and stuff like that. Like, yeah, no, I really liked them. Well, mud honey was more, I mean, they, I think they did some singles with them, but they're yeah. sub pop. Yeah. Through, you know, well, no, but like, uh, they, they did a lot of collabos. Yeah. That was the thing is they were amphetamine reptile was one of the companies that was in the days when the rebirth of the single, they were doing a lot of split singles and we're bringing that out where they would get bands from one label with somebody else. They had a whole series called dope and guns and fucking in the streets. So. Yeah. I mean, there was that one kind of like super weirdo group that they did together that, uh, they show on here that I wasn't aware of, but I really liked it even though it was nothing but art noise. Yeah, I mean, it depends on... I mean, like I said, these are mainly noise rock bands. There were a few that were here and there that were not that, but you're dealing with bands like uh, Boss Hog, which Mm -hmm. was... uh, I 
you know, if you were buying records in these days, you heard of Boss Hog because their front cover of the first album was the lead singer who was way hot, just stark <laughs> naked. <laughs> You're like, what is this? Uh, Brainiac, Chokebore, Cosmic Psychos, The Cows, The Dwarves, Gas Huffer, uh, Helios Creed, Halo of Flies, which is actually the band of the, the guy who owns the label, God Bullies, which is one of the ones that I think that might be the one you were talking about. I think so? Uh, a lubricated Goat, <laughs> a Nashville Pussy, Steel Pole Bathtub, Surgery, who were one of those bands that, if the lead guy singer hadn't died in an accident, they were on the road to breaking it into like, you know, Soundgarden Nirvana levels. Because hmm. their album that they put out like and he died like a week later is one of those records you can just listen to over and over and over again and go wow this is right up there with anything coming out of that time it's a slickly produced you know done by a major label at that point you're like they knew these guys had something mm-hmm. but then what are you going to do your lead singer's gone end of band another yeah, <laughs> love bone baby yeah well i mean what was kind of interesting was a lot of the names that they said were names that i had heard during the time but i couldn't identify a song to save my fucking life right no even with me being really into the scene with like grunge and punk and all that at this time there were a lot of these bands i'm like yeah i remember people talking about them i remember seeing posters for them <laughs> but or singles in the store but i've never actually listened to them right uh i, I don't know i just found this interesting because this was another another state's view of the punk scene from a different time like mm-hmm. salad days is very like you're talking 80s and and early 90s this is more like the nine, 90s to the early aughts mm-hmm. you know looking at the the scene there going on and how that influenced a whole thing that really did wrap around the country in terms of like how everybody changed their their way of selling stuff and doing shows and and that sort of thing that that started from amphetamine reptile and on that level i really found this interesting um, it comes with a shit ton of extra features, which is rare for a documentary. Yeah, yeah, because usually they've, they've exhausted everything making the documentary. Yeah, and this has got a ridiculous amount of extras, including a lot of live shows and things like that. So if you are a fan of Invetamin Reptile Records, uh, this is by all means kind of a must-own. And if you're not, well... Maybe it's not really your thing. Then just watch Meet the Feebles. <laughs> Is that what you're going to just keep coming back to? <laughs> I am now. I can't rewatch Meet the Feebles. All right, watch Dead Alive. Now, I don't care. Because watching that fish get puked up and it's still alive, uh-huh. that gives me nightmares. Well, then, then just have nightmares. Like, like, a puppet movie is one of the most disturbing films I've ever seen in my life. That's yeah, pretty awesome. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, next up is my pick of the week for this week. I know you have a different one. I do have a different one. My pick of the week is Ikiru. The, Ikiru. The Criterion uh, release of the Akira Kurosawa film. The title translates as To Live. This is a 1952 film that's not one of his samurai films. Yeah. No, he did do those. He did. <laughs> he's better known for them in America. However, he's equally well-known in Japan uh, and by hardcore uh, film buffs for his sort of bureaucrat-slash-businessman series of films. Yeah, salarymans. And this is considered to be arguably the best of all of them. I This is the only one I've seen of those. But I gotta say, this one really blew me out of my seat, even though it's kind of it's kind of Kurosawa doing Capra. Oh, completely. I mean, yeah. you're like, this is like really about like why do we live? Yeah, and, and even just the look and feel is is so Capra esque. It's eerie at times. Oh yeah, um, but at the same time, certainly with a a darker tone. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, the story here follows uh, 
uh, Kanji Watanabe, played by Takeshi Shimura, who's worked on quite a few Kurosawa films, who is this middle-aged, really kind of pathetic guy who spent his whole life working, you know, 30 years in this bureaucratic position at this group government uh, group that's the job is to basically redirect people who need help for anything Mm -hmm. to another division that won't help them either. Yeah, you you can get something stamped somewhere else. Exactly. And he's just, his office is just packed with bundles of like probably requests that are just going unread and unacknowledged (laughs) and uh, everything changes in his life when he learns that he has stomach cancer and less than a year to live and he has no idea what to do because some people will go like oh well I'm going to go spend time with my kids well he does he lives with his kids who are older (laughs) or his kid who's older and has a wife who is a, a tiresome shrew of a woman um, and his son, which is just totally unappreciative little bastard, are <laughs> just waiting for him to die so they can <laughs> like get his, uh, his his retirement money, or waiting for him to retire so they can basically take his money. Uh, and he's got nothing else. Uh, his wife is dead. He can't bring himself to tell his son that he has cancer because he goes, his son doesn't give a shit about him and he realizes mm. this. So first he decides, okay, I guess I'm going to do what people do because I have all this money in the bank. I'm going to go out and try and party. But Yeah, yeah he's going to eat popsicles in every country in the world. Yeah, well, he goes <laughs> around town with the, the help of like a guy you think is trying to take advantage of him but ultimately is like a shady type guy, underworld guy who genuinely feels bad for this mm-hmm. this dude and is like, let's go to strip clubs. Let's go to gambling houses. Yeah, let's, let's, let's live it get up. you a hooker. Let's do all this <laughs> stuff. And none of this is ultimately what he needs as he goes through it all like a ghost. But it's, it's completely necessary that he's presented with it. So if he, he, there's no question in his mind. Like, yeah, this shit is not really what's yeah, this important. This is not what I was missing from life and like this movie's divided into two halves the first half is this following him on this and coming to realize that what he's going to do with his remaining time is help out this group of women who've been uh, impotently running from department to department for months trying to get taken care of a a, basically a a runoff of a, a giant area in their little area of the city that is just filled with stagnant water and is attracting mosquitoes. Yeah, poopy water. Yeah, sewage. They just want something done and everybody just redirects and ignores them at every turn. So, you're like, uh, he's like, I'm going to go into work and do this. Split to the second half of the film, which is, he's died of cancer and this is where things get really fascinating. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Where it's kind of a 12 Angry Men type situation where it's all these people in uh, like the the funeral room uh, discussing him that starts very sort of like just being polite and these are mainly people who work for him and city dig- various other city dignitaries who the main one, the mayor, basically right off the bat is like, I don't know why everyone keeps saying that this new park that was built in this area, that it was his park. He, uh, uh, I was the one who really got it done. And the rest of it is them sort of everyone else breaking down what actually happened and being in awe that this guy, this functionary, actually got something done because of passion and dedication to help people. And it's so moving as it plays along. By the end of it, I was a mess. <laughs> yeah, the second half is kind of like an effective version of Parks and Rec. <laughs> it actually is. Uh, I, yeah, I. by the end of this movie, I was completely like in tears. I found it incredibly moving. Um, I, I really think this is like Kurosawa's best film that well, I've seen. Well, what's interesting is that uh, the, the, the kind of salaryman, futile life... Uh, 
scenario that he sets up is one that is often visited in in Japanese cinema. Yes. For ever since that was done, you know, it's it's constantly revisited. But uh, the I don't I, okay. I go on a limb and say the sweetness that was brought to this is is something that hasn't really been recaptured. Yeah, like they get the the whole depressing uh, futility of life thing. They don't get the whole it's only futile if you make it futile thing. Yeah. Um, one thing that's very notable in this is how haunting the face of the lead actor is in this, and every shot for the first half of this film, he does literally look like a ghost. He's like he's just huge eyes and a constantly startled, haunted, sad look. And people literally in the movie, I mean, they respond to it like, "Stop fucking looking at me, dude! You're freaking me out." <laughs> well, well, like like the the just the subtle shadow in his face, mm-hmm. like all the time. It's just beautifully done. There's shot after shot in this that just takes your breath away. You're like, "There's a reason Kurosawa is considered to be such a master." And if you want to see why, this is one of those films that you can't miss it. Oh no, absolutely not. Uh, this being Criterion Edition, of course, there's tons of bonus features on here. There is a very long documentary on here that's a very in-life look into Kurosawa called A Message from Akira Kurosawa for Beautiful Movies. Uh, there's also another documentary called Akira Kurosawa, It Is Wonderful to Create, which focuses on the production history specifically of Ikiru. Uh, there's an audio commentary uh, by the author of The Warriors Cinema, the cinema of Akira Kurosawa that talks about the film. And then, of course, the leaflet that always comes with these. They don't really get the booklets so much anymore. It's mm-hmm. lately just leaflets, but still they're interesting yeah, essays. Nice have. But Akiru is my personal pick of the week. What's funny is uh, there's another movie, a Chinese movie, also called To Live, uh, but it's Puyi uh, in in Chinese. Well, that's clearly not as good then. Uh, uh, obviously. <laughs> but no, like uh, apparently To Live means that the movie is going to be depressing as fuck, but also really, really uplifting worth watching. at the end? Yeah. <laughs> at the very end, it'll be uplifting. <laughs> Pretty much. You know all that depressing shit we showed you for two plus hours? There's a reason. Here's a flower blooming out of the soil. <laughs> Well, on from that and on to candy. Uh, Yeah, uh, American Ultra. This is a film that most critics I talked to absolutely hated. And it's a film I watched and went... That was fun enough. I don't see. Yeah, it's dumb fun. Noise. What do you want? Yeah, it's like, like, what were you expecting to see here? Well, we really wanted him to get into the head of David Foster Wallace. <laughs> well, I mean, this is written by Max Landis, so maybe people were expecting Chronicle Two. Uh, uh, you yeah, know, that, no, which it is decidedly not as good a movie as Chronicle is. No, but, but it is exactly what it sells itself as, and for that. I go, hey, you made a better-than-average little action comedy. Yeah, it's cute. Yeah. The idea here is Jesse Eisenberg is a complete stoner who's living in West Virginia with his girlfriend, Kristen Stewart, and they're both kind of, you know... Way, clearly bags. wasting their life. I mean, they're not assholes. They're just, well, no, they're just they're just bags. they're slackers. Yeah, you know, they're just like they have no ambition. He, you know, draws and writes little comics, but won't actually do anything with it or try to, you know, he's like, oh, it's just kind of my thing. Wasteoids. They're wasteoids. Uh, and he can't even leave the town because they're, they're like, he wanted to take her to Hawaii to propose to her. But when he got to the airport, he was just in the bathroom. Couldn't even get out of the bathroom because he was having such a bad panic. And he attack. wasn't having poops. And she was, no, he was not. And, mm-hmm. uh, she was like, that's okay. I forgive you. But clearly is kind of pissed off because why wouldn't you be? Yeah. But, why? uh, but they go back and it turns out that like, he is in fact, the top like refugee I suppose you could call him from a previous ultra program of the government to create complete badasses but he's been put in 
sleep mode essentially where he doesn't remember any of it he just pictures himself as this you know who he who we see him as happy to live his life out, out that way uh, his former handler who had started this organization played by uh Connie Britton is has been demoted and now her new boss who is just supposed to be a temporary role but he's been there for 2 years played by Topher Grace is a complete asshat uh, oh, yeah. who has created his own program using psychotics <laughs> as hey, killers you know. and wants to wipe out any remaining traces of her previous program by killing the last remaining guy which is in fact uh uh Jesse Eisenberg so her learning this, she's like, "Well, I'm not going to let that happen. That's not fair. This is a good this this poor kid was a good kid. He's a good kid now, despite being kind of a waste. He's a <laughs> nice guy. It's not fair that this is happening to him." So she goes there and basically tries to activate him with a code phrase. Only he doesn't seem to take to it until assassins show up and he kills them with absolute ease and is like wait what just happened with a casual insouciance <laughs> and a spoon <laughs> and a spoon. Um. And ultimately, this is just kind of a, ch- a chase film with lots of action films that involve him creatively killing people with whatever's around him. And John Leguizamo saying funny things. Uh, yeah, but for the brief time he's in this, uh, Walton Goggins plays one of the assassins who is probably, sadly, one of the most underused aspects of this, and I mm-hmm. didn't really like the conceit. He's called Laughter because he always does this sort of, like, cackling laugh that is just kind of annoying. Annoying, yeah. Yeah, and you're like, okay, I get that, especially towards the end of the film, I get that you guys thought he was more memorable than he really was was here but and that is Walton Goggins everybody loves Walton Goggins but you could have come up with something better for him than this yeah I, I, I do gotta say that I was really glad because at, at one point when uh, Goggins was about to do he's like I'm gonna do a bad thing I was like oh man he's gonna try to rape Kristen Stewart and then he doesn't and I was like yeah. oh Good. Yeah. We don't have to make him absolute evil. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Bill Pullman has a small performance in this. Uh, like, the, basically, he's only here to be the guy to wrap, the, wrap up everything. Um, you know, I guess I just had more fun than I didn't. It's not a wildly memorable film, uh, action comedy, but I still... I still can say that I had fun with it. I didn't regret watching it. Yeah, no, not at all. All the way to the end, I was like, you know... I wouldn't mind seeing a sequel to this, even. Well, okay, so my big question is, how much money did Neo Guri pay them uh, for all that product placement? The the bowl of ramen that he keeps eating, or soup, as he oh, calls yeah, it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it shows up everywhere. Well, you know, that's how it works these days. And- no, I'm fine with it, because it, yeah. it's, it's a you know solid product. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose. I don't, does it matter if it's a solid product or not? To no? me, it does. I only mat- It only matters to me when they specifically call out something. Like, it really irritates me when they just keep pounding it into the ground, like we said in our review for the night before, where it, it, it keeps going... Oh, and by the way, did we mention Miley Cyrus is amazing? And, <laughs> and it's like, you're th- mid-30s, yet you would never mention that. <laughs> no. You would never say that. Uh, so when someone's just using a product regularly, I could give a shit. But like when you're just telling me, buy this product, I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> hey, at least it showed that this movie showed that Subaru is like in all that hot shit. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I recommend this a lot more than I don't, so... Yeah, American Ultra, not bad, not great, but, you know, passably entertaining. Yeah. Uh, You know, I was kind of surprised. Usually when you get these little tiny indie uh, films like horror slash thrillers that somehow find a distributor, you know, when they're clearly super low budget, you've never heard of anybody in it, they're nine times out of ten, they're pretty awful. Mm -hmm. I actually kind of like the Badger game. Oh, I I thought they were shooting ten for ten. What do you mean? 
I, I didn't care for it. No, I mean, I don't think it's a great film or anything, but it, it was stronger than most of the stuff you see here. Uh, you've got these uh, two characters, uh, Alex and Jane, who were women that were dating this guy, uh, Liam, who turned out to be married and dumped both of them after treating one of them, Jane, who was the stripper, like shit, like burning her with cigarettes and everything. Hey, he treated her like a stripper. <laughs> and uh, Alex was just, you know, they, she thought they were going to get married, only to find out he's just been stringing her along. So they decide to get revenge on him, uh, hooking up with uh, uh, one of their, uh, with Alex's brother, uh, who's who's actually kind of funny, I thought. He's trying so hard to be... I don't know who, but his <laughs> performance was making me laugh because he's this huge guy and he's trying to be all sensitive at some points and other points. He's this complete misogynist, almost rapey prick. And you're like, what? Who I are always, you? I, I felt that his focus during the entire movie was wearing a shirt. Yeah. Or not wearing <laughs> a shirt. <laughs> uh, and they also get this other girl who's just a friend of theirs. And she's like, you owe me. You've got to help us. And everything goes terribly wrong, of course. As they kidnap this guy, and the idea is they've got all these photos of him with them. They're gonna, we're gonna tell your wife. Uh, and he's like, well, whatever, dude. I've been looking for an excuse to get rid of that bitch anyway. Right, because the, the badger game is is a term of basically blackmailing yeah. a, an adulterer. Uh, but they basically find themselves getting in deeper and darker situations, and admittedly. If there's a problem with this, I think ultimately it is with the performances because the movie takes a turn in the third act that doesn't feel convincing given the performances of some of the characters in it. Yeah, that, like, that's part of it. I don't believe that person would do that at this yeah, point. Yeah, I don't know. All around, I was just kind of... Uh, a little more effort on a lot of different fronts and it could have been a different movie. Yeah, no, I, I don't... Like I said, this is super low budget. It's, uh, it's you know... It was had its premiere at something called the Arizona Underground Film Festival. So there you go. And it was not sponsored by Ice T. It was no, it was not. And this is super underground. I'm really shocked that Intervision uh, Media Picture Corporation put this out on Blu-ray as well as DVD. But I mean, if you're in chasing, I mean, this director or director is Joshua Wagner and Thomas Zambeck put together better stuff than the, the script they wrote is really for it, but there's even there, there's some interesting stuff going on. I feel like years from now, if these guys end up going on to bigger things, which I could see, because for such a tiny production, it's remarkably professional, I could, it would be interesting to look back and go, oh, this was a not bad first effort. It, uh, yeah, we'll take this as a, as a learning uh uh, point. Yeah, I guess you don't have to watch it, but uh, <laughs> but it's the Badger game is nonetheless when I can't completely write off either. You know, I was a little surprised coming back to John Sayles' relatively classic Eight Men Out mm-hmm. uh, that I didn't like it as much as I did the first time I saw it. Oh, sweet. Okay, cool. I, I said consistent. I'm, I was like, mm, you I don't care. Well, that's the thing. When I first saw it, I really enjoyed this film. And now it's like, it's so dry and emotionless. Yep. I mean, and lots of critics said this before me, you're going to like it better if you're a baseball fan. And most baseball movies, that's not true of. Most baseball movies are very, include include everybody. They're very emotional. This is one that's really just, it's just kind of about what happened, which is (laughs) the Black Sox scandal 
in the 1919 World Series where basically back then baseball players weren't played shit. Mm. The man, the owners took all the money. The players were making, you know, basically less than minimum wage to do this. You know, it's like food and board and, and, uh, and you get paid shit. Yeah, it's basically like being in a coal town. It was indentured servitude, essentially. <laughs> uh, and these guys who were being treated by one of the worst owners in the entire league, Charles Kaminsky, uh, decide that you know what fuck it i mean we are definitely i mean they're the dominating the 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 red sox or white sox they were the dominating team that year no one expected that they could lose uh the world series like uh, i think they were playing the uh, uh they were playing the red sox but they were like you know what we're going to we're going to take mob money and we're going to throw this game and and in fact did and it deals with the the different personalities and the different people who were uh, either in on it or refused to have any part of it but didn't report it. John Cusack plays Buck Weaver, who was one of the guys who wouldn't take money or try and throw the game, but also didn't tell anybody. So he got thrown under the bus just yeah, along with complicit. everybody else. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting story. You kind of – it definitely is is des- designed to make you feel really bad for these guys uh, with the possible exception of Michael Rooker who kind of – who plays Chick Gond- Gondil, one of the, the – the, basically the guy who brought everybody to this. Like, hey, <laughs> we should all do this, who is like, you know, just kind of a thug. Wait, Rooker plays a sleazebag? Yeah. No. Uh, um, uh, uh You've, Michael Lerner plays Arnold Rothstein, the the gangster who's actually pretty good. But you kind of want to see more of him. You're like, why? Why are we getting that guy's got more character than anybody else in this movie? Um, and DB Sweeney, a young DB Sweeney, plays Shoeless Joe Jackson, who was definitely like thought of as probably the greatest player in the game at that point. Who never played again for a major league after this is mm-hmm. often thought of as the biggest tragedy of all this. Is this guy who's one of the greatest players ever never even got to fulfill all his potential since he was so young when this happened. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it just needed, it needed punch up is what it needed. It needed a lot of things. <laughs> it needed chutzpah. Uh, I, you know, I'd, I'd rather listen to Greg Proops talk about baseball than watch this movie. Well, I'd rather, I'd, you listen to Greg, Greg Proops talk about anything. It's pretty fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I guess this is more about Greg and less about <laughs> yeah, so you're, just, you're just putting it out there you're a Greg Proops fan. <laughs> Okay, I'll yeah. say it. I'll, I'll take a stand. His web, his podcast is called, wouldn't it, like the most interesting man the in the world? The smartest man in the smartest world. Smartest man in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is the Blu-ray, first Blu-ray release of Eight Men Out. It's definitely, like, it's not a bad film. It's just, just a little too dry. A oh. lot too dry. Yeah, it's like a yeah. saltine without pizzazz. But if you don't know about the, the Black Sox, hey, you should watch this at least once so you know the story. Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good <laughs> yes. story. It, it is a good and interesting story, and it definitely had major impact on the history of sports afterwards. Yeah, I yes, mean, it, it did. changed a lot <laughs> because yes, of what's happening. Uh, next up is Making Mr. Right. Oh, boy. <laughs> wow. Um, if you ever wanted to see John Malkovich play a sex robot, well, here's your movie. Oh, I remember when it came out. Uh-huh. Uh, I was a kid, and I didn't get it. And. And after watching it again, I was like, oh, oh, because I didn't, I didn't like it. <laughs> I always wanted to see this film and never did until just now. They put it out on Blu-ray from Olive Films because 
Anne Magnuson plays the lead character, who most people have no idea who that is. She was a, a very minor character actress. I'm, in yeah, film. I'm, I'm still unaware. But she's better known for her musical career, but even then, in a very niche way, she had this band called Bongwater that I was a monster fan of at around the same time this movie came out. And, I, you know, it was very art rock, like very... Uh, singer-songwriter mixed with the Buttle Surfers, if that makes any sense. Ooh, okay. I like that. <laughs> you know, if you can imagine, like, a, like it's like folksy, uh, ironic feminist wisdom mixed with the Buttle Surfers kind of insane. Okay, now I'm down. Yeah, yeah. It's, down. it's good stuff. But, uh, yeah, this movie's not so good. Uh, <laughs> Jeff, John Malkovich plays two roles. Jeff Peters, a, an, a scientist who's a complete asshole, mm-hmm. who has developed an android that looks exactly like him, although it's not clear whose dick is bigger. Probably the androids. Mm, maybe. <laughs> um, who is, have built this android because of deep space exploration, which would be, of course, so difficult because most humans can't live without other humans for long periods of time, and it would be like a seven-year mission. But he developed this android so he could send it out into space. Ian Magnuson works for a public relations firm, and she's hired to help the project uh, to for public relations. So she she's hired to basically try and humanize the robot a little. Well, what she does is create a robot that is... Uh, you would think someone would point out at some point notable because of its capacity for emotion and mm-hmm. independent thought, but no one even brings that up as anything other than an irritation. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's to the point where <laughs> why not just send these fuckers into deep space? Yeah. <laughs> the makers of the film. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, that too. Uh, and she's like, it's lots of like awkward comedy as the robot's trying to telling, basically falling in love with her, and she can't find a good man, so you know she's going to end up with the robot. However, weird that is. <laughs> um, even in in uh, weird science, the kids never fucked their their woman they built. Okay, That's they wanted to. They, they wanted, wanted to. to. They couldn't because ultimately they weren't in love with her. That's true. But here she falls in love with the robot, so I guess it's okay. Oh, that's right. Hey, kids, oh, sex is okay as long as it's with, for love. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is a mess. It's just really the only real wa- reason to watch this is to watch John Malkovich play w- maybe the most awkward role he's ever played. Like the most. What were you thinking casting John Malkovich in this role? Yeah. Like, yeah. It's so out of place. <laughs> making Mr. Wright more like making a bad movie. Uh, so Fear of the Walking Dead came out mm-hmm. on Blu-ray very shortly after the end of the Surprisingly the short. This is a six-episode uh, series on AMC that is also created by Robert Kirkman and Dave Erickson, who've created The Walking Dead as sort of a prequel slash spinoff um, that – Unlike The Walking Dead, which takes place after, like, I think it's been like a month or two after after the start of the zombie apocalypse, where we see Rick wake up in the hospital and shit, everybody's fucking... Oh, no, zombies. Uh, so we don't really see the beginning phases. This is about the beginning phases, and instead of being in Georgia, it takes place in Los Angeles, uh, following sort of a dysfunctional family uh, of a uh, high school guidance counselor played by Kim Dickens, her new husband, uh, uh, Cliff Curtis, uh, who I really like a lot, really like Cliff Curtis in most things. (laughs) Uh, Her 19-year-old son from a previous marriage who is a heroin addict, played by Frank Delane, um, uh, her daughter, who is uh, Alicia Debnam Carey, who is... uh, 
like honor student overachiever who also is thinking about rebelling completely and leaving with her, her like tagging artist boyfriend. Uh, <laughs> and then it expands to have some more characters after that as well, including Ruben Bl- uh, Blades. As, or is it Blades? It's Blades. Is it Blades? Okay, because somebody told me it was Blades. I was like, that doesn't make sense. If, if you want to, I guess. Uh, who is plays a very intense uh, local who hooks up, up with all of them, who is basically willing to start torturing people at a drop of a hat. Hey, you need that guy. <laughs> and, you know, I guess if there's a problem with this... There's definitely a sort of you know you you have that feeling in a lot of shows that okay they're going to switch out some people here before too long because they're mm-hmm. going to see who works and who doesn't and yeah and it's the perfect avenue because life and it's, death it's a zombie yeah. show you know that's going to happen anyway yeah. you know it's a spinoff of The Walking Dead yes all of these not all of these characters will be here throughout next the next season for sure and not all of them are here through this season <laughs> such as it is but I think. It's not just that because there's not a lot of chemistry between everybody. I mean, ex- no, it's yeah, it, especially between Kurt, Kurt, Cliff Curtis and his wife Kim Dickens. There's nothing, not even a spark of chemistry between. No, it's it's like a bottle of talcum powder. Yeah, <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, and there's not a lot of actual zombie stuff. I mean, sure, we get it. This is the very beginning, so there wouldn't be right. Maybe a little more. Yeah, I, I really felt that uh, just just playing up uh, interactions, uh, you you got to make them a little bit more interesting if there's not going to be uh, shooting zombies in the face. Yeah, and I guess I just didn't really care for these characters. No, 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 you can't connect to them. I mean, I guess you could if you wanted to, but there's 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 no immediate pizzazz. There's no. Like, Rick's an idiot, but at least Rick's like, oh, he's all broody and he's guilty. And then, oh, he found his family, you know? Like, there's yeah. there's stuff that you can latch on to. I, I guess, I guess I, ultimately, the starting cast of The Walking Dead, I just liked more right off the bat. Yes. I like these characters mm-hmm. who are really suburban and kind of dull. And the fact – I know that, like, everyone took a while getting over the, the whole, like, but I don't understand why they're still worried about, like, doing the right thing and being human. It's, like, because zombie apocalypses don't exist in fiction in their world. Mm-hmm. So they haven't been <laughs> arguing about it on Reddit for 17 years. <laughs> <laughs> you know? It's not like that. When real people are confronted with the world where you have to murder other people who aren't even zombies on a regular basis just to stay alive. Yeah, she gets They roller. do tend to get a little, like, philosophical about things. <laughs> you know? from time to time, It takes yeah. people a while to completely switch their human from one mode to another. <laughs> Here you're like, I don't give a fuck about your problems. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're suburban assholes. <laughs> I mean, I don't think this is absolutely terrible, but if this wasn't a spinoff to The Walking Dead, oh, damn done. sure wouldn't have gotten a second yep. season. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, maybe I, there's so little that happens in this first season that if it turns out the second season like hits the ground running and kicks ass. I don't really see that you have to watch the first season. No, yeah. It's only no. six episodes. so It's kind of like the opposite of Walking Dead, where the first season was great. The second season, to me, was just boring as shit. Yeah, the second season was definitely like the, okay, we didn't spend... Well, the first season was really short for The Walking Dead. Mm-hmm. And the second season is about them saying, there's a lot of characters on the show, and we really didn't give people much of a chance to get to know them, so let's let everything slow down so we can introduce character arcs, which I think is fine. I think it's well done. It's just, hey, gosh, you're making a zombie show, remember? You got to kill some people every once in a while. Remember how you started off by shooting a little girl zombie? (laughs) Do more of that. We need more of that. (laughs) 
That girl's all grown up now, and they're, of course, releasing sexy pictures of her online. Oh, are they? Yeah. I mean, I saw a thing the other day where it's like, check out what that little girl from episode one of The Walking Dead looks like now in a bikini. Hey, Internet, you don't fail me. (laughs) They're always doing stuff to keep Joe happy. You weirdo. Oh, no, I I don't want to see the girl. I just want people to be idiotic. Yeah, of course. That's always fun. Uh, next up is well, another one of the films I really, really loved this this week. Uh, Amy, the documentary, really, yep. really did not care about Amy Winehouse at all when she was alive. And I admit, I'm one of the jackasses this film refers to towards the end as they're like, yeah, people just used her as the butt of jokes. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, she's a little girl who just wanted to be loved, who was missing uh father figures in her life. Her dad was completely absent until she got rich. And then suddenly he was there all the time. Yeah. When, when we, when we uh, reviewed it the first time, I think we focused more on the drug use, but on, on the, the second go around, I, I really found that the, the bigger issue was apathy and not on her part on everybody, everybody in her life failed her at some point. Oh yeah. They're all, I mean like, especially like I said, her father who not only failed her in growing up, who just wasn't there at all. But then later, I mean, you know, the song, you know, my daddy said, it's okay. I don't go to rehab. Literally. That was her deciding factor when everyone else was telling her, you need to go to rehab. Yeah, And she was her on board. Was like, you don't need rehab. Cause all he could see was dollar signs. Yep. Hey, she's big right now. If she goes to rehab. That's going to put a stop in the checks coming to me right right yeah <laughs> there, there's going to be a lull in the income in fact her dad is now suing apparently the makers of the film for oh, defamation she go fuck which, himself which is like bullshit everything that damns you in this movie are recordings of you doing the thing yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'm not sure how you can say that's defamation yeah because there's not even like oh well i think that he was a piece of shit <laughs> you know there's <laughs> It's not just him. It's her boyfriend who oh. she's just obsessed with. Because this is the thing. This girl who she just needs – she wants to have a strong male figure in her life and she just latches so strongly onto certain males, including this guy Blake, who is a piece of shit right from the get-go. Oh, yeah, yeah. I 120%. Mean, like, yeah. You're like, oh, wait. He was cheating on her with his fiance. I think they said it was. Originally. Yeah, his girlfriend. Yeah. And, and then left her when he got bored of her when her first album didn't turn out to be – anything more than a minor success, you know? Uh, and he's like, oh, okay, well, I'm going, I think I really love my girlfriend. But then when her next album came out back in, Oh, look, who's back. It was like the biggest hit ever. Suddenly he's there again, <laughs> like by her side. And you're like going, Oh my God, you're an astonishing douchebag. You are, you literally are trying to marry your father. Well, like the, they, they show footage of the, the night that they were married and they're all hanging out in like some like hotel, uh, grill. And you know, the, he's ordering up champagne and like, who's going to pay for that? Like, oh, Amy's going to pay for that. <laughs> okay. I get it. He's, he's, I can't believe that, that, more people aren't sending him hate mail on Twitter <laughs> after this movie because you're like, yeah, you more or less killed Amy. Mm-hmm. You know, like you you put her in the position where you were protecting her from people who were actually trying to help her. Yeah. Well, and even the people who were trying to help her, I understand there's only so much you can do, but at some point they they stepped back when maybe they shouldn't have. Yeah. No, I mean, I think at some point it was exhaustion of trying. Mm-hmm. You know, they kept trying to help her and she kept, you know, pushing people away or were trying to help her. And the thing is, she really was a genuine talent. I mean, she mm-hmm. had an unbelievable voice. She really did and wrote some really good songs. Uh, 
and watching this, there's so much footage of her, you know, even as very young, you're like, she was a really likable person before drugs and everything took it else, all away. alcohol yeah. just made her just a human wreck. Uh, and you feel sorry for the jokes that you told back then watching this right. movie because you're like, this poor girl, it really human – I think it's not just a film about Amy in that sense. It's in the way that we look at celebrities is what this film is mm-hmm. and the way we – we don't even think of them as being human beings, you know? Yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> I mean uh, Simon Amstel from Nevermind the Buzzcocks, uh, I think he's really kind of come around to like, yeah – I, I made a lot of really funny jokes at at the expense of a lot of people, and Amy included. Like uh, before I watched this, that was one of my favorite clips of Nevermind the Buzzcocks is when he had Amy on and he just fucking destroyed her. But now it's like, oh, yeah, she was going through shit at the time. Yeah, some serious <laughs> shit. <laughs> this is, a, I think, really one of the best sort of like post mortem rock documentaries I've seen in mm-hmm. a long, long yes. time. I uh, really, really, really recommend Amy. Uh, in a lesser week, this would have been my pick of the week. Yeah. Yeah, no, completely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, next up is Mississippi Grind. You know, it's so sad to this day how I remember to spell Mississippi, right, is always going to M-I-S-S-I-P, singing the little song that goes <laughs> with it, you know. <laughs> uh, this is a film that actually was given a lot of strong reviews, and I can't quite figure out why. Um, the idea is Ben Mendelsohn plays a gambler that is on a serious losing streak, is just below rock bottom in terms of all the dead he's in. And he ends up teaming up with a young gambler played by Ryan Reynolds, who appears to be at least, you know, on the surface, more like, hey, I'm just in this to have fun. I don't really care if I win or lose, but who's actually on kind of on a winning streak. And the two of them end up sort of on a road trip. Uh, as, uh, you know, his luck is indeed seeming to change the older guy, Ben Mendelsohn's character, being with the younger guy. And, in fact, they form a kind of friendship. As it goes along, we learn through meeting people who know them both that, like, as much as Ryan Reynolds seems like this really together guy at first, you're like, no, he's a complete wreck of a human being as well, just in a very different way. And I don't know. I mean, it's definitely an interesting character transition but it's not a terribly interesting movie no not at all <laughs> like i i honestly can't remember much about it <laughs> yeah not much really happens in it uh, there's a lot of extended gambling scenes which has no personal connection with me cuz i don't gamble <laughs> well no like uh even for people who do gamble it's not the way the way it's it's not really dissected it's just kind of displayed out there and nothing about it's interesting or remarkable yeah it's like yeah that's that's how you gamble yeah yeah <laughs> and and like it it covers a lot of the same ground we've seen other movies about gambling just nowhere near as well no <laughs> <laughs> you know it's like really kind of hitting a lot of the same clichés at its best I think Ben Mendelsohn does a really good acting performance here. Ryan Reynolds is still largely just playing Ryan Reynolds. Dude, Mendelsohn's hair just bugged the shit it out of me. It was weird hair. It was super weird hair. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I mean, I guess I just, you know, when you're having a character piece, which is largely what this is, a character piece character piece about how this relationship with the two end up being a sort of voyage of self-discovery for both. You have to really care to some degree about those characters. You know, I actually kind of thought it was kind of like a shittier version of, of uh, end of the tour. Yeah. I can see that. <laughs> like, yeah. Honestly. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, I, it's weird. They were even sending me Oscar nod 
desk for this one. Nice. Like, you should think about nominating someone from this film. I'm like, I think I won't. I think I'm going to think about Pi. I think, why Pi? No, not the movie. Just Pi. Oh, okay. Yeah. Pie sounds good. It's fucking delicious. Yeah, it is good. It's better than Mississippi Grind. Uh, Next up is another film that I actually got sent for Oscar screening purposes. Uh, Tangerine. Okay, here's the thing about this film. I think there's nothing wrong, and I have no problem with watching films about people in the transgender community, transvestites, whatever it may be. I do have a problem with a film where everyone in it is a just irredeemable prick. Mm. (laughs) You know? Where I'm like, there's what am I supposed to like about any of these people? And Tangerine, that's the ultimate problem with it with me. I feel like it's being celebrated for two reasons. One, it was filmed entirely with an iPhone camera. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, which, like, keep in mind, they were using expensive filming software on an iPhone camera. <laughs> well, and and you, they used a sh- did spend a shit ton of money in post-production. Well, because I was going to say, like, they have uh, lens attachments for iPhones. Yeah, and it had all that sort of stuff. But filming on an iPhone camera still, that's kind of impressive yeah, that you can do nice. that. I mean, it's certainly cheaper than getting a Sony Rad or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no matter what programs you're buying for it. Uh, and the other notable thing being that this was starring actual street hookers, tran- mm-hmm. transgender street hookers. Like literally the two main stars in this were two transgender street hookers who the director, Sean S. Baker and, and Chris Burgock found on Hollywood Boulevard and started interviewing and talking to and made the movie around them loosely based on their real life experiences. That's interesting. It's just, I just couldn't stand them. They're evil, self-centered, awful people. <laughs> I don't know. I really liked it. Um, okay. I, I I think that that life is a lot harder than than one would like to think about. Oh, and so it definitely turns you into this sort of, like, there was a connection that the two definitely had where they were completely codependent on each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's that's why the, the reveal at the end... Uh, is is kind of a, a punch in the gut. The acting wasn't all that great, but I thought it was somewhat effective. Well, the acting's better than it should be. Yes, yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly what. Just two people we found on the street. Uh, um, um, the idea here is one is a uh, Cindy Cinderella, who is a trans woman sex worker who has just gotten out of a you know a month long prison sentence. Who's met up with her best friend Alexandra, who's also a trans sex worker at a donut time, and she her friend informs her that her boyfriend, who is also her pimp Chester, has been cheating on her with a white you know, heterosexual woman. Mm. Uh, and so a lot of this is spent with her track, trying to track down like in a fury, this woman who's just a really pathetic junkie whore, you know? Yeah. Literally. That's, yeah. That's, uh, that's, yeah. That's not an insult. That's her quite literally what she is. <laughs> um, and then basically, you know, trying to find Chester once she's got her to confront her with this right. war. And there's this weird little side story with a taxi driver who uses transgender prostitutes himself that, like, I'm not entirely sure why it was part of this. Okay, well, it's in, it's entirely part of it for the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the one thing I did not like was the, was the side story because it was not minor. Yeah. Like it, 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 it messed with the tempo of the, of the movie oh, all the way so. through. Yeah. Yeah. Every time they were, they went to the cab driver, I was like, why are we spending time with this cab driver? 
Like, uh, I, I, I would say I didn't like the, the two protagonists. Okay. Actually, I, I kind of liked Alexandra. Um, but I I certainly, because Alexandra, at least until the reveal, you're like, well, I mean, other than the fact that she's tricking, which right off the bat, you go, stop tricking. (laughs) (laughs) You're, you're like, at least she's trying to help this person. And, and who else do you know who would put up with the bullshit she's putting up right. from Cindy, who is just awful. <laughs> right. But, but I, I still got their motivations. Yeah. I understood why each of them was doing this thing. And I understood, I at least had an idea of what kind of environment could create this kind of person. Okay. And I'm not talking about the trans no. thing. I'm talking about the selfish as fuck thing. Oh, no, no. I, I agree with you a hundred percent with that. I think that ultimately it's like, we're not talking about, like I'm, I'm not a social worker. <laughs> I'm trying to enjoy movies, mm-hmm. and so for me, I'm like, I just have a hard time sitting through something where I just really don't give a fuck. Mm-hmm. Like I go, you're a bad person, and I know that was created because of like shit that happened that put you where you are. You're in a terrible situation, but that doesn't change. The, I mean, we don't like let serial killers go because their fathers beat them constantly when they were a kid. You know, part of, I'm not saying these yeah. people are serial killers or we should treat them badly. I mean, we should have some level of understanding in real life, but it's not going to change the fact that I, in the context of this movie, I'm like, I don't give a fuck what happens to these people. And I loved the shade being thrown. I wish it was a bit snappier. Yeah, it could, it could have used a little, I mean, I feel like I'm not hundred percent sure, but I feel like a lot of this was improvised. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, like I tell you firsthand, memorizing scripts is not easy. And when you're really the only two major characters in the film with dialogue, that's and you've never acted in anything before. <laughs> that seems a little improbable. That yeah, they, I, I thought Alexandra did the best of the two of them, though. Yeah, yeah, agreed. I mean, like uh, Cindy is playing it too too much to the hilt, mm-hmm. almost to a cliche. Right. Uh, but I mean, I. This definitely got a lot of positive reviews from a lot of critics. I am in the minority and feeling like I just didn't really enjoy this. I don't think it's a bad movie per se. It's just definitely not for me. I can see it. Yeah. Uh, next up is uh, Before We Go. Boy, was this unnecessary. <laughs> Other than, hey, Chris Evans. All right. Everybody loves you. Here's your chance to direct a movie. Well, I, I, I don't know. I kind of liked it, but I did feel that it was more like a – no, no, Chris Evans doesn't have to be in in a fucking bubblegum superhero movie. Uh, but, like, <laughs> I mean, I you know he want obviously like most actors like I don't want to just be that guy and yeah. be in just action movies, just superhero movies. I want to do a dramatic, serious role, and this is more of a romantic comedy mixed with uh, Before Sunrise. Yeah, kind of like you think it's gonna be, and then it's not, but then it is, and then it's not. It was the, the twisty turnies were just too much for me. Well, it's uh, he plays Nick Vaughn, who is a, a guy busking. You know, playing an instrument for money in Grand Central in New York, in uh, in New York, and she sees Alice Eve, who's just missed the Boston train, and now at one thirty a.m. and that's the last train. There's not going to be any more till the next day, and she's freaking out. And he plays like kind of the most generic nice guy ever. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's when white meets bread. Yeah. And uh, who's like, I'll, I'll do anything I can to help you. And they end up having a sort of overnight hanging out in in uh, New York, uh, even though she's like, yeah, look, I'm married. I'm trying to – I can't even – you know, the secret is why – if she's married and happy and everything's fine, why is it her whole life is going to fall apart unless she gets back 
to mm-hmm. Boston immediately. Uh, and him trying to figure that out and her trying to figure out what's going on with him because apparently he was in love with this woman to the point that it, when she left him, it ruined his life and he just can't get over it. And it's their conversation and sort of bonding slowly as that goes along. And I guess if I have a problem, it is entirely with the performances here because every time they they try – I mean they both are people who are beautiful. Yes, they are. Unreasonably beautiful people. And they both kind of fall back on their old tricks and other stuff that they more typically do, which is I'm going to just be charismatic and smile even though this is a serious scene and it completely diffuses everything that's actually going on in the dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. It, it doesn't leave those awkward moments. Like every time there could be an awkward moment, it yeah. addresses it immediately. Yeah. Yeah. It goes it, – it, it, it's almost – and like – Anything that, like, is happening dramatic, like I said, they diffuse it so fast and just like, now we're back to being charming and funny. You're like, yeah, but I don't think that's what would happen. (laughs) It's just none of this feels real to me. And they're trying to make a film that's supposed to feel real. Right, because were it real, uh, after he tries to help her, she'd be like, get the fuck away, creep, and that's it. She would have mace sprayed him almost immediately. (laughs) End of movie. (laughs) Well, I mean, to be fair, it is, you know, uh, 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 Chris Chris Evans. So she probably was like, get away from or we could talk a little longer. <laughs> You're inhumanly attractive. <laughs> so are you. We should make babies together. They would be pretty ass babies they, or really ugly babies. I don't know. I just thought this was dull as fuck because there's nothing that happens in it that's be- that is that believable. Uh, you know, I get the one thing I'll say is I like that I I couldn't figure out what the twists were with either one of them, like what they were going to do with their little stories. I, they weren't like written writ large in stone the way lesser films of this type are. But even when you got to those things, I was like, and that wasn't that interesting. Oh yeah, well what I felt with with her big reveal was I was like, I don't know what it is, but I bet it's underwhelming. Yeah, and sure enough, <laughs> yep, it was. <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, you know. I mean, they are two charming people we'll see in better movies than this, and it's nothing about it. The direction is necessarily bad. No. It's mainly just, like I said, the performances and then the script to some degree. But, hey, what are you going to do? Before we go, you'll probably be the last you hear of it, quite frankly. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, we're going to end things up this week with uh, your pick of the week. That's right. My which, pick of the week. Which is Best of Enemies. Uh and this is like definitely my my second choice for best of the, uh, pick of the week. This is about and if you're young, you will have no idea what I'm talking about here. But stick with me. Yeah, yeah. Listen, you kids. <laughs> there were these two intellectuals. One was extremely to the left, Gore Vidal, and one was extremely to the right, who basically invented the neoconservative movement. Well, Mf Buckley. To be completely fair, it is where a queer meets a. Crypto Nazi. <laughs> that's it. Well, that's the 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 crisis point in this documentary <laughs> that you're referring to. But uh, this was in like the late '60s, and these two guys were hired by ABC, who was by far of the three networks. Yeah, there were only three back there, kids. Back then, kids. Uh, they were ABC was by far the lowest rated network, especially their news division. Well, they decided to try this new thing where they would have debates between these two intellectuals on either side uh, who hated each other. Gloriously so. Oh my god! Like like, and they're both like such. I mean, they're just such characters, both of them. They both oh yeah. I have like, even though they both have very clipped erudite ways of speaking, neither one of them came from an extremely rich background. They sort of worked to get to where they were. No, not necessarily. 
Not, well, Buckley what? especially did had to. His family was actually kind of poor, yeah. and he worked his way through that and became very rich. Uh, Gore Vidal gave him a little more money, but even so, not as much as you'd think. Yeah, he was he was Bouvier adjacent. <laughs> um, and these two, when you put them together, it was just fireworks. I mean, and you can see why ABC like it. This whole series of televised debates with them on various political issues changed news. Oh, period. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) That was like everything in news, all the networks took notice and how successful it was. And I mean, like it birthed things like crossfire, you know? Well, I mean, what it, what it really did was it, uh, it laid the groundwork for galvanizing, uh, and, and for, uh, political, uh, image identification to where people, because you could have like you know your your blue dog Democrats or your liberal liberal Republicans and stuff like that. You know there was room in the party for different voices to be heard. And like what we see now with, uh, well the Tea Party is not really Republicans. They're like super neo conservatives. Like and but they're they're making other Republicans irrelevant. You know it, it's it's the rise of that. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, it's the birth of it. Buckley was the birth of neo conservatism. Like, I, I totally think he was the beginning of the shift of the Republican Party to just insanity. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, and he was even he would not approve of what's going on with the Republican no, Party. No, that's right that's 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 the all. beauty of it. Is- that's the thing is, like, he thought he was doing the right thing for the party then having no idea what a monster he was. creating. Oh, yeah. Uh, what's one of the things that blew me away about this? I I've read a lot of Gore Vidal's books. He was amazing writer. Oh, fantastic. All of his books are out of print. Really? Yeah, that's the world we live in now. Nobody knows or remembers who Vidal even was, who was a major figure. Everybody knew who Gore Vidal was back in the yeah. the sixties, the seventies, the eighties. Now nobody knows who he is. Well and and, and uh as a fair counterpoint to <laughs> Buckley, I mean Vidal is part of the reason why alternative lifestyles and, and gay and lesbian and all mm-hmm. this uh, trans like he did a lot of work for that just by writing. He he did. He was one of the like first people with a very major public, you know, a- image. Like everybody knew he was. He spoke on, on major issues all the time, on bigger things to come out and say, "Guys, this is ridiculous in this day and age that we're still treating people who are gay as lesser citizens." Yeah. You know, uh, and wrote like apparently the movie based on the book that he did. You know, the Myra Beckenridge. Yeah, the, apparently the book's great. I mm-hmm. had never read the book, but the movie is supposed to be like one of the worst pieces of shit. Oh no, it's made. awful. It's, Isn't it like Jane Fonda playing? No, it's uh, uh, Raquel Welsh. Yeah. yeah. Um, but one interesting thing I thought here is that they choose to do off-screen voices of well-known actors to play the two guys when mm-hmm. they're reading the material. And they got John Lithgow, a famous liberal, to vote voice uh, Vidal, and Kelsey Grammer, a famous conservative, to voice Buckley, which I thought was actually pretty clever. Yeah, no, it was cute. Um, but yeah, this is really like... You know, you sit up in your chair after a little bit in this movie because you get so fascinated about what's going to happen well, between these two guys. And and they they, they chronicle the, the the ten debates that they had. And one of the other than than learning about uh, modern politics, which is very important. Yeah, I mean, um, this is definitely about how everything has shifted in modern politics. It, it's got it's got it it's got plenty of sugar too because when when not just Vidal. Like I, I, I agree more with Vidal than I do with Buckley by far. Yeah. But 
when either of them gets an oh snap off, it yes. is fan fucking tastic. Oh, and then they do. They, t- I mean, it is the most entertaining debates, you, political debates you will ever see. I mean, these guys take the piss out of each other like in such a huge way regularly. <laughs> and the thing is, it all built to this one time that yeah, like Vidal calls Buckley a crypto Nazi, and uh, and uh, Buckley says, "I'm gonna fucking punch you in the jaw, you queer," <laughs> on national live television. And it kind of ended that. Oh, yeah, thing. yeah. That's and, when he lost. And, and, like, Buckley spent the rest of his life in misery, at least according to this documentary, to some level, because he can't believe he lost his control to that level. Right, because he's, he, at that point, such, he lost the, the, the race. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, that he knew he lost that debate because he's the one who lost control. Uh, and... You know, spent the rest of his life being unsure of himself because he that was what he always prided himself. Absolute, complete control. <laughs> that and painting dogs. That <laughs> painting dogs. Yeah, absolutely. Best of enemies. Top-notch stuff. It's definitely in my, t- uh, in my top three picks this year for best documentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, well worth your time. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. And, of course, for our giveaway. Giveaway. And uh, I should have done this last. I don't know why I fucked up. But we actually have a copy of American Ultra to give to you guys. So maybe you can back me up and say, hey, you're right. This is actually a pretty fun little movie. Fuck those other guys. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what they're talking about. I had fun with this. Uh, So what you have to do to win this is you go on Twitter to our One of Us Net uh, Twitter account. And with the hashtag Ultra Giveaway, you... You you uh, come up with the best three word activation phrase. Oh yeah, for like a secret agent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Uh, does it have to be three words? Or could yeah, be no, whatever? because then it's going to be like in the moon in June and spoon with the the rain in the spains. And you know, you, we got to We got to keep it tight, guys. All right, Self-head. fair enough. Fair enough. Three words. Uh, well, anyway, that is uh, and they do that to win American Ultra. That's digital noise. Thank you, Joe, for joining me. Hey, thanks for me being here. The show will be back shortly with uh, Brian and Johnny. So stay tuned for that. 